Triumphing over sinful fear by John Flavel and conquering through faith. Chapter is called Remedies for Sinful Fear. We have come to the most difficult part of this book. The cure for sinful and slavish fear. If God applies this cure, we will live at heart's ease in the midst of our troubles and enemies. Like the sun in the sky will keep a steady course in the darkest and gloomiest day. But before I come to the particular rules, it is necessary in order to prevent mistakes to lay down three important cautions first. We must understand that only those in Christ are capable of improving the following rules to their advantage. Christ's greatest argument for extinguishing our fear of those who kill the body is the soul security, Matthew 10, verse 28. If the soul perishes with the body, or if the soul falls into hell before the body enters the grave, or if he who kills the body also cuts off the soul from the means of mercy and happiness, what can relieve a person against fear of death? Second, we must not expect a perfect cure for our fear in this life. While there are dangers and enemies, some fear will work on the best hearts. If our faith could be perfected, our fear would be perfectly cured. But while there is much weakness in our faith, there will be much strength in our fear. For those who are naturally timid, who have more of this passion in their constitution, and for those in whom melancholy is rooted in chronic disease, it will be difficult to remove fear and dejection, but they will greatly be relieved from this tyranny and enabled to possess their souls in much more comfort and tranquility by using the helps and means that follow. Third, we must not think that the bare reading or remembering of the following rules will suffice. We must work them into our hearts through fixed meditation and live in the daily practices of them. It is not the explanation of a case to a physician nor is written prescription that cures a person. If he ever expects to be healthy, he must take the bitter and nauseous medication, even if he hates it. He must abstain from unhealthy food, even if he loves it. The same principle applies to the following rules. Rule number one, study the covenant of grace. The first rule for relieving slavish fear is to consider seriously and study thoroughly the covenant of grace in which all believers stand. A clear understanding of the covenant's nature, extent, and stability, along with our interest in it, will go a long way to cure our sinful and slavish fear. A covenant is more than a naked promise. In a covenant, God has graciously considered our fears, doubts, and weaknesses. Therefore, he proceeds with us in the highest way of solemnity, confirming his promises by way of an oath. Hebrews 6, verses 13 and 17. And seals. Romans 6, verse 11. He places himself under the most solemn ties and engagements to his people, so that we might take strong comfort from so firm a ratification of the covenant. Hebrews 6, verse 18. He has ordered it so that it might afford strong support and encouragement to our faint and fearful spirits in the midst of trouble, from within and without. In the covenant, God gives himself to his people to be their God. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, Hebrews 8, verse 10. 
He bestows himself upon us in all his glorious and essential properties so that we are assured that, in all fears and hardships, he will faithfully perform whatever his almighty power, infinite wisdom and incomprehensible mercy can afford for our protection, support, deliverance, direction, pardon, or refreshment. God expects us to improve this by faith as the most sovereign antidote against all our fears in this world. But now, thus saith the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Listener, if you are within the bonds of the covenant, you will surely find enough there to quiet your heart. Whatever the cause of your fear, if God is your covenant God, he will be with you in all your straits, wants, and troubles. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. David used a covenant to encourage himself against all his troubles. Although the, my house be not so with God, yet has he made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he makes it not to grow. Second Samuel 23 verse 5 He fetched relief, comfort, and salvation out of the covenant. We can do the same. David desired nothing more for his heart's support. Surely if we understand and believe it, as he did, we will desire nothing more to quiet and comfort our hearts. First, you're afraid of what your enemies will do? We know we are in the midst of potent and enraged enemies. We have heard what they have done, and we see what they are preparing to do. I'm able to think of the bloody tragedies that their cruel hands are likely to perform in this world. But what heroic and noble acts of faith should God's covenant enable you to exert in the midst of these fears? If God is your God, then you have an almighty God on your side. That is enough to extinguish all these fears. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Psalm 118, verse 6. Your fears come in the name of man, but your help comes in the name of the Lord. Let them plot, threaten, and strike. God is a shield to those who fear him. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 31. Second. Are you afraid of what God will do? Do not fear it. Your God will not do anything against your good. Do not think that he will forget you. It cannot be. A tender mother may sooner forget her nursing child. than God will forget you. Isaiah 49 verse 15. He withdraws not his eyes from the righteous. Job 36 7. His eyes are continually upon your wants. And dangers. There is not a danger or an enemy stirring against you that his eyes do not see. Second Chronicles 16.9 Are you afraid that he'll forsake you and cast you away? It is true. Your sins deserve it. But he has secured you fully against that fear in his covenant. 
I will not turn away from them to do them good. Jeremiah 32 verse 40 Your fear of God forgetting or forsaking you arises from your ignorance of the covenant. Third, are you afraid of what you will do? It is common for God's people to propose difficult cases and raise startling questions. These may serve to rouse them out of a false security, force them to try their condition in a state, and make them prepare for the worst. However, Satan usually uses these to a contrary end, to deject, frighten, and discourage them. If fiery trials were to come, if my life and liberty were threatened, I fear I would not have enough strength to continue in the way of religion. I am afraid I would faint at the first encounter. I would deny the words of the Holy One, and I would make a shipwreck of faith and a good conscience at the first gust of temptation. I can hear, pray, and profess, but I doubt I can burn, bleed, or lie in a dungeon for Christ. If I can barely run with footmen on a land of peace, how can I possibly contend with horses in these swellings of Jordan, Jeremiah 12, verse 5? But these fears are groundless, either forged in your own heart or secretly introduced by Satan. God has abundantly secured you against such fears by the most sweet, supporting, and blessed promise. I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. That is a different kind of fear from the one that startles you. God promises to put it in you, not to shake and undermine your assurance, but to guard and maintain it. This fear is able to vanquish and expel all your other fears. Fourth, are you afraid of what the church will do? What will become of the ark of God? Do you see a storm gathering, winds beginning to roar, and waves beginning to swell? Are you afraid of what will become of that vessel, the church, in which you have so great an interest? This filling sense of the church's danger and suffering is an argument for your spirit's excellence. Most people seek their own things, and not Christ's, Philippians 2.21. That being said, it is a sin to fear to such an extent that you sink and faint under a spirit of despondency and discouragement. Many good people are prone to this. I remember an excellent passage in one of Martin Luther's letters to Melanchthon in Private Troubles. I am weaker. You are stronger. You despise your own life, but fear the public cause. But for the public cause I am at rest, being assured that it is just and true, that it is Christ's and God's cause. I am a secure spectator of things. I do not worry about what those fierce and threatening papists can do. I beseech you by Christ, not to neglect divine promises and comforts, the scriptures say, cast your care upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord, be strong, and he shall comfort your heart. In another epistle, Martin Luther writes, I much dislike those anxious cares which, as you say, almost consume you. It is not the greatness of the danger, but the greatness of your unbelief. John Huss and others wonder greater danger. If it is great, he is great who orders it. Why afflict yourself? If the cause is bad, let us renounce it. If it is good, 
Why do we make him a liar who bids us to be still? Are you able to do any good by such unprofitable cares? I beseech you, you, who in other things are so valiant, fight against yourself, your greatest enemy. You put weapons into Satan's hand. You see, public fears can overwhelm even good people. Certainly, if we were to consider the bond of the covenant that is between God and his people, we would be more composed. By reason of this covenant, God is in the midst of his people, Psalm 46, verses 1 to 4. When any danger threatened the Reformed Church, in his tender beginning, Luther would say, Come, let us sing Psalm 46. Indeed, it is a lovely song for such times. It bears a title, a song upon Alamoth, or a song for the hidden ones. God is with them to cover them under his wings. It is a matter of fact evident to the world. Did no people have been so wonderfully preserved as the church? It has survived bloody massacres, terrible persecutions, and cruel enemies. God has preserved and delivered it, just as he promised, Jeremiah 30, verse 11. It is obvious to all who will consider it that God's motives for caring for his people have remained the same since the beginning of the world. God's relation to his people is still the same. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in their graves. Those who succeed them are far inferior in grace and spiritual excellence. Yet, says the church, doubtless you are our father, Isaiah 63:16. There is the same bond between the father and the younger, weaker child. It's between the father and the older, stronger child. God's pity and mercy are still the same. They endure forever. His heart yearns as tenderly for his people in the present as it did in the past. The rage and malice of God's enemies are still the same. They act as blasphemously and dishonorably toward God's people today as they ever did. Moses' argument is as good now as it ever was. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains? and to consume them from the face of the earth. Exodus 32, verse 12. Joshua's question is as good now as it ever was. What will you do unto your great name? Joshua 7, verse 9. All the things were more thoroughly studied and believed. They would relieve many fears. Rule number two. Consider the misery of sinful fear. The second rule is to consider the mischief and misery that sinful fear produces in this world and in the one to come. First, present misery. Miseries and calamities that sinful fear brings upon people in this world are unspeakable. It has plunged the consciences of so many poor wretches into deep distresses. It has put them upon the rack, made them roar like the damned in hell recovered while others have perished in these deeps of horror and despair. In year 1550 in Ferrara, Italy, God's grace converted Faninus to the knowledge of the truth, wherein he found such sweetness. By constant reading, meditation, and prayer, he became an expert in the scriptures. He was able to instruct others. 
Although he dared not go beyond the bounds of his calling to preach openly, he was helpful to many through private exhortations. When the Pope's officials found out, they arrested him and committed him to prison. When he renounced the truth, they released him. Shortly after the Lord met with him, he fell into horrible torments of conscience. He was near to utter despair. He was not free from those terrors until he fully resolved to venture his life more faithfully in Christ's service. As soon as Francis Byrus' sinful fear prevailed upon him to renounce the truth, he seemed to hear a dreadful voice in his conscience. You wicked wretch, you have denied me. You have renounced the covenant of your obedience. You have broken your vow. Hence, apostate, bear the sentence of your eternal damnation. Immediately he fell into a swoon, quicking and trembling. Until his death, he affirmed that from that moment he never found any ease or peace of mind. He professed that he was held captive under Almighty God's offending hand, that he continually heard Christ's sentence against him, and that he knew he was utterly undone with no hope for grace or that Christ would intercede for him to the Father. In Queen Mary's dreadful days, Sir John Cheek, who had been tutored to King Edward VI, was cast into the tower. They gave him this miserable choice, surrender his life, or his liberty of conscience, which is more precious. His friends could not procure his liberty at any lower rate than a full recantation of his religion. He was unwilling to do so until his hard imprisonment, joined with threats of much worse, finally influenced him. His consultation with flesh and blood drew from him a renunciation of that truth which he had so long professed and still believed. As a result, he restored his liberty, but never his comfort. The sense of his apostasy and the daily sight of the cruel butcheries inflicted upon others for their constant adherence to the truth made deep impressions upon his broken spirit. It brought his life to a speedy end. Our own histories abound with multitudes of miserable examples. Some have been in such horror of conscience that they have chosen strangling rather than life. They have felt an anguish of conscience that has led them to desperate attempts to take their own lives. This was the case with poor Peter Moon. His fears drove him to deny the truth. He fell into such horror of conscience that upon seeing a sword hanging in his parlor, he wanted to plunge it into his heart. When Francis Byron was near his end, he saw a knife on the table. Running to it, he would have killed himself if his friends had not prevented him. He said, Oh, that I were above God, for I know that he will have no mercy on me. He remained about eight weeks, according to one historian, in continual burning neither desiring nor receiving anything. He vehemently raged for drink, yet feared to live long. He dreaded hell, yet coveted death. He was in a continual torment, and yet he was his own tormentor. He consumed himself with grief and horror and patience and despair, like a living man in hell. He was an extraordinary example of God's justice and power, and so ended his miserable life. 
Surely it is good to use these dreadful examples to awaken ourselves out of sinful fear. Is there any such misery that we can fear from man's hands? O reader, I believe it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, verse 31. If you were to feel the rage of a wounded and distressed conscience like these poor wretches, it would drive you into the same hell on earth. Future Misery Unless the Lord overcomes and extinguishes your sinful fear through the fear of his name, it will not only bring you into a kind of hell on earth, but into a hell itself for all eternity, but to fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21 verse 8 Here we behold the law of heaven executed upon cowards and renegades. Those fears make them run from Christ in time of danger. Think upon this, you fearful and faint-hearted professors. You cannot bear the thought of a lying in a nasty dungeon. How will you lie in a lake of fire and brimstone? You are afraid of human frowns. They will die while you live among demons. Is man's wrath, like God's fury poured out, is not God's little finger heavier than all the tyrants in the world? Remember what Christ declares. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 10, verse 33. Reader, the time is coming when Christ will break forth from heaven with a shout accompanied with the saints and angels, the heavens and earth will be in dreadful fire all around him. The last trumpet will sound, graves will open, the earth and sea will give up their dead. Your eyes will see him ascend the awful throne of judgment. His faithful ones, who are not afraid to stand with him in the face of dangers and enemies, will sit with him as judges. What will it be like? for Christ to disclaim and renounce you forever in the face of that great assembly. What will it be like for him to proclaim you a delinquent, a traitor, because you denied his name and truth before those who have long since withered like the grass? Oh, how will you endure this? Now put these two together. Consider the terrors of conscience here, and its desperate horror in hell. This here is but a smoldering, but that... Is a roasting in the flames of God's insufferable wrath. This is a scalding drop sprinkled upon your conscience. That is a lake that burns forever with fire and brimstone. Oh, who would choose that suffering out of fear for present suffering which only touches the flesh? It is but momentary. Think upon Christ's words. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Why, out of fear for a trifle, would you prolong a life that ends in the second death? It is nothing compared to what you will suffer from God forever. Rule number three. Prepare for future suffering. The third rule for overcoming the fear of suffering is to prepare for it beforehand. The fear of caution is a good cure for the fear of distraction. One fear cures the other as one fire draws forth another. By faith. Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark. 
He provided as much for the rest and quiet of his mind as he did for the safety of his person and family. Evil is frightful because it often comes upon us by surprise. Troubles, which find us secure, leave us desperate and distracted. Presumption of continued tranquility is one of the greatest aggravations of misery. Trouble lies heavy enough when expected, but it is intolerable when unexpected. It is Babylon's lot to suffer the unexpected trial of God's wrath. I wish that only she and her children would be so surprised. Revelation 18.7 It would be good for us to mingle such thoughts as these with earthly comforts and enjoyments. I am at ease in my home, but the time may come when my home will be a prison cell. At present, I see friends' faces full of smiles and honors. Soon I may only see enemies' faces full of crowns and terrors. At present I have an estate to supply my wants and provide for my family. But this may shortly become spoil for my enemies. They might sweep away everything and reap the fruit of my labor. At present I have my life. Oh, how soon it might fall into cruel and bloodthirsty hands. I have no security for these things than the martyrs had. They suffered the loss of all these things for Christ's sake. Since meditations of these result in a double advantage. Acquaintance with trouble. First, they acquaint our thoughts with evils. The more they are acquainted with them, the less they will be startled and frightened by them. We should not think the fiery trial is strange, 1 Peter 4.12. As it is, our thoughts are like young colts. They startle at every new thing they meet. We cure them by bringing them repeatedly to the thing they fear. Better acquaintance cures this startling humor. The newness of evil, says a learned divine, is the cause of fear. In other words, fear arises when the mind has no preceding encounter with its object whereby to judge its strength. Fear also arises when the mind has had no example of another person's victory whereby to confirm hope of similar success. As I noted earlier, experience, it's a kind of armor, a kind of fortitude, enabling the mind to judge and to bear trouble. There are things that children fear only out of ignorance. As soon as these things are known, they cease to be terrible. I know our minds are naturally reluctant to think upon such harsh and unpleasant objects. It is difficult to bring our thoughts to them in good earnest. It is difficult to dwell upon them as long as it's necessary to achieve this end. We'd rather take a pleasant prospect of future contentment and prosperity in this world, of multiplying our days, of dying quietly in our nest. Our thoughts run nimbly upon such pleasant fancies, like oiled wheels. However, when our minds enter the deep and dirty ways of suffering, they have great difficulty. They're like Pharaoh's chariots without wheels. That which is most pleasant is not always useful and necessary. Our Lord was well acquainted with grief. He often thought and spoke of his suffering, and of the bloody baptism with which he was to be baptized, Luke 12, verse 50, when he perceived the fond imaginations and vain fancies of some who professed to follow him, deluding themselves with expectations of earthly rest and prosperity. He turned their thoughts to this last pleasing subject, 
the things they would suffer for his name. Instead of answering a foolish and groundless question concerning who would sit on his right and left hand, he rebuked their folly and asked them a less pleasing question. You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They deceive themselves with such fond and idle dreams. There is other employment cut out for them in the purposes of God. Instead of sitting upon thrones and tribunals, they'll be brought before them as prisoners to receive their sentence of death for Christ's sake. Similar thoughts as these would do us a great deal of service. Preparation for Trouble Second, such meditations prepare our thoughts to encounter trouble when it comes. Readiness will subdue and banish our fear. We are never as scared of those things for which our minds are prepared. There is a difference between a soldier in complete armor, who is ready for his enemy, and a soldier who is surprised in bed. When his enemy breaks open his door, his clothes are in one place and his weapons in another. It is for this reason the Apostle presses us so earnestly. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 15. We see the benefit of such provision for suffering in Paul's example of courage and constancy. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 21 verse 13. The same courage and constancy remained in him when he was going to lay his neck upon the block. For I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. 2 Timothy 4 6. The expression signifies a libation or a drink offering. Some people think he is describing how he will die by the sword. His heart was at that place where he could willingly pour out his blood for Christ. As a priest used to pour out drink offerings to God. It is true that all the meditations and preparations in the world are not sufficient in themselves to carry through such difficult services. It is one thing to see death at a distance in our imagination. It is another thing to look death in the face. We can behold the painted lion without fear, but the living lion makes us tremble. Although our strength does not come from our own preparation for death, but from God's gracious assistance, yet He usually communicates his assistance through the conscientious and humble use of these means. Let us, therefore, be found waiting upon God for strength, patience, and resolution to suffer as become Christians in the serious use of those means whereby he is pleased to work in his people.